We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to A Taste of Romamu, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Romamu, please visit Romumu.org. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. What can we say that hasn't already been said about maybe the most, well, actually, the most commented upon piece of Torah, or maybe even in all of Western literature, the 22nd chapter of the book of Genesis is as famous as it is horrific. It tells us a story of of a somewhat crazed, potentially obedient father who upon hearing the words from God, bring your son as a sacrifice, dutifully does as he is told. Story is shocking. And even those who want to contextualize it within a culture where child sacrifice was the norm, we as readers and for centuries, Jewish readers, have struggled with this text. The plethora of commentary not only is owed to the beauty of the laconic text, what Eric Faubach famously called, Eric Auerbach famously called the text that is fraught with background, that the text is so elusive and so economical in its wording that the white space, the space in between, is so prominent. We wonder... What did they speak about as they were on their way? The Torah doesn't tell us. We wonder whether Abraham, as he did in chapter uh, 19, argues with God. It seems pretty clear that he doesn't, although later Midrashim, later rabbinic stories, do tell of an Abraham who argues. Later Midrashim, notably in the Middle Ages when martyrdom was very common, read Isaac as a martyr, as one who actually died on the altar whose ashes were offered, and every year when we read this story, Isaac comes and his sacrifice, his willingness, his obedience, is merited towards us. We say, in the merit of Isaac's willingness to be sacrificed. The great Immanuel Kant, the philosopher who argued for the categorical imperative, for ethics that must transcend all time and space, argued that this story is a story that must teach us nothing about obedience other than Abraham's own sin. Kant wrote that Abraham should have responded to the voice that said, bring your son, of this I am sure, that you are a demonic voice that you are a demonic voice. For all time, Kant's critique was already leveled earlier when the rabbis imagined an Abraham who said to God, or who should have said to God, yesterday you told me I would have a son, and today you tell me to bring him as an offering. Could be that is the reason the rabbis desired to make Abraham into a good guy. Could be the reason why they say that Abraham um, should have understood Well, Abraham did understand that when God said, bring him as an offering, he didn't say, sacrifice him. 
So what do we do with this story this morning? Every year at this time, I think to myself about the beautiful teaching from Rabbi Jill Hammer a number of years ago, Jill, when you taught us that the difference between the Abraham, the relationship between Abraham and Isaac in the beginning of the story is very different at the end, where one word to describe their relationship is, is missing, a word that begins, the word that is ahava, the son that you love, and that, that noticeably that word is absent later on in the story. I'll never forget that teaching. But I want to lift up this story this morning in some way. Because that's our work often, is not only to get up as many rabbis have done before, notably in the beginning of the 19th, in the 20th century, reform rabbis were wont to get up and say, we categorically reject this story. And I've done that here too. So let be clear. I'm really clear that I don't like this story. And let's also be clear that I love it. In certain ways, I struggle with this, as I struggle with many pieces of Torah. And in that struggle, in that, in that grain of sand, as it were, in the pearl of Torah, I'm trying to find a pearl here this morning. So, so I want you to go with me for a bit. Not too long. Just, just this moment. And it was after these things that um, we're told, it was after these things. And God nisa et Avraham. God tested Avraham. And Avraham responded, Hineni, here I am. This nisa, this word nisa, linasot, to test someone. This is only a test. Right? This is a test. This is only a test. Were this the real thing, you would receive instructions. We are immediately told by God to allay our concerns as readers that this is a test. Right? As readers, Abraham doesn't know that this is a test, but we do. As soon as the text tells us this is a test, it's like John is like, wow, it's just a test. Abraham, of course, doesn't know it's a test. Wouldn't that be great if all of the tests in our lives were known to someone and we could find that out somehow? Like you're in the middle of something horrible going on in your life, you're thinking, oh, so you get a phone call, this is a test. <laughs> this is only a test. Man, I've felt that way all year. What's the test? What have I been testing in this year? As Rabbi Jessica spoke about so beautifully yesterday, hope. Testing my own elasticity of my labels, my label elasticity. What am I being tested for this year? What is the test this year? So then we hear it. Take your son, your only son, the one whom you love. Yes, that one, Isaac. And take him. And go to Eretz Moriah, to that Har HaMoriah, to that, land, that mountain of Moriah. The great Jacques Derrida, the deconstructionist, the father of deconstructionism, the great French philosopher, wrote, The story is no doubt monstrous, outrageous, barely conceivable, a father ready to put to death his beloved son because the great other asks him or orders him without giving the slightest explanation. But isn't this also the most common thing? As soon as I enter into the relation with an other 
with the gaze, the look, the request, the love, the command, or call of the other, I know that I can respond only by sacrificing ethics. And that is, by sacrificing whatever obliges me to also respond in the same way, in the same instant to all of the others. Day and night at every instant on all Mount Moriahs around the world. I am doing that. I am raising my knife over what I love and must love over those to whom I owe absolute fidelity incommensurably. This Lech Lecha reminds us of the Lech Lecha of chapter 12, where God says to Abraham, here's a promise. If you leave what you are familiar with, if you leave what you know and you go to the place where you don't know, I promise you this. I promise you you will have children. And that promise hangs over the entirety of the book of Genesis as the story of Avram unfolds into Avraham, into Ishmael in chapter 21, and so on, until we finally arrive at this, what is called the last trial, the last of the ten tests. And we're signaled that it is the last one because of the words, Lech Lecha, go essentially bringing us back to chapter 12. This Lech Lecha is not to another land that you do not know. He's already been shown that. Go to a mountain I will show you. He is being bid to go to the place of Lech Lecha, chapter 12. He's being asked to sacrifice what he had already been promised. Rabbeinu Yonah, a great scholar, wrote that he thought that the last trial was not the trial of, of the Akedah, of the binding of Isaac, but rather in the next chapter, when Abraham has to bargain for the land of Israel. Rabbi Yonah says he was bargaining for something that was already promised him. He was entitled to it. Why did he have to bargain for it? He said, that's the greatest test. When things that you are given as promises or as entitlements are given away. So here this morning... I'm thinking, what's the greatest test for me as the year unfolds and as it has unfolded? And I think to myself, my greatest test is to give up things that I've been privileged to have for the sake of a justice that is greater. Who isn't in this room on some level privileged in some way, shape, or form? We all have our suffering. We all have the things that we brought here, this Chagim. I know that some of you have hearts that are broken, some of you have been through trials of your own this year that are unimaginable. And yet I feel this morning, specifically where we sit this morning in this beautiful air-conditioned Upper West Side Apple Church, <laughs> enjoying all of the benefits that we have. If we are only to think of the places that we ourselves are lacking, it's too small this year. It's too small. And without entering into a debate about whether or not privilege and how to define privilege, we are all privileged. We don't need an academic conversation about what privilege might look like at this moment. There are bigger, bigger questions to have. But each and every one of us knows on some level that a promise that was made to us, whether we earned it or not, most of us, and have to earn many of the promises that were made to us by this society and this culture. And here we are this morning, and Abraham is bringing the very thing that had been promised to him. 
He could have said, and again, we're lifting up Abraham. Complicated, but we're lifting it. I was saying, Abraham, our father Abe, wow. The source of love and justice comes to you and says, the thing that you think you are entitled to, maybe you're not entitled to it. Maybe it doesn't belong to you. Maybe that's one of the greatest sacrifices we can ever, ever imagine ourselves making is the very thing that we have to let go of it for the sake of justice. Or maybe let go of a little bit of it for the sake of justice. Maybe just one moment of lifting up all of the unspoken promises and entitlements that we ourselves have and have been privileged to have for the sake of an ethics that is greater than the ethics in this moment. Because Jacques Derrida says that at every single moment on Mount Moriah's around the world, on Mount Moriah's around my individual world, I am asked to respond to this person. Even though everyone equally deserves me, I have to sacrifice the universal ethics of Kant for the particular ethics of this person right here. Lech lecha. It's a different lech lecha, but it's, it's so beautiful. It undoes the first one. It's the greatest trial. What Shalom Spiegel called the last one. Can you give up your privileges for the sake of justice? Or maybe some of them, maybe one of them, maybe look at them, maybe entertain that you're privileged. Wherever we are on the spectrum, of promises that have been given and offered to us, maybe we ourselves can move ourselves ever so slightly towards the spectrum that sees each and every one of us involved in social justice in our own ways, in our own small but significant ways that might themselves add up to a much bigger question that all of us have to answer. Maybe. Yesterday I spoke about names. And one of the beautiful things about having a second day is you get to say again some things that you were not sure you made clear. <laughs> Every single rabbi that I know of has like the Monday morning quarterback. They have like the Saturday afternoon or the Friday night quarterback, or whatever that might be. We go back and think about, oh, I wish I had said this. So I might have said this. I have to go back and listen and watch this tomorrow or whatever it is or next week. But I love names and labels. I feel so deeply that we're not to live a labelless life. First of all, it's absurd. It's crazy. We are, by definition, labelers. We use language, and language is beautiful. From a very young age, we are taught to name and label things because that's the way we steer ourselves from things that are dangerous. Right? If I know that that's right and things that are not. And so today I want to, as a, as a closing of this kavanah, I want to come back to naming. But this time, when we forget to name privilege, or more accurately, when we forget to name that which is marginal so that we ourselves can participate in lifting up that name of the one whose name is forgotten. This is from my dear sister, Lynn Gottlieb, a tireless worker on, on behalf of Palestinian and Israeli peace. Achti, I am pained I did not call you by the name your mother gave you. 
I cast you aside and cursed you with barrenness and rage. I called you Hagar, as if it were a sin to be from another place. Achti. They used me to steal your womb, claim your child as if I owed your body and your labor. I whom they call Sefar woman, Sarah's name is Sefar woman, could not witness my own blindness. But you, my sister, you beheld angels, made miracles in the desert, received divine blessings from a God who stopped talking to me only at the end when I witnessed my young son screaming under his father's knife. Only then did I realize our common suffering and I called out, Avraham, Avraham, hold back your knife. My voice trumpeted into the silence of my sin. Forgive me, Ahti, for the sin of neglect, for the sin of abuse, for the sin of arrogance. Forgive me, Ahti, for the sin of not knowing your name. This is a powerful moment. It's a powerful moment this morning in the story of the Akedah, imagining that the one named Sifar woman is the one who stays the hand of Abraham, but even more powerful is this in the context of privilege and lifting up the things that had been promised and naming and naming those who are unseen. If we have privilege, and all of us do, we must be willing to use it appropriately, to be willing to bring it forward not so that Abraham can fulfill his singular promise, so, but that so everyone can participate in that promise as well. Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac can be seen in this complicated but hopeful pearl of a teaching. To be lifting up all children, as it were, to say not Isaac alone, but everyone deserves the promise.